that's my good friend right there. Yeah. I, I dreamt about him last <laughs> night. So this is the About Violence podcast. And um, today we are talking something near and dear to my heart. We are talking to two of the most incredible men I have ever been so fortunate to have a little bit of time with. Um, I'll try and be a little vulnerable and transparent uh, talking about... The, in one of the darkest moments of my life, you were one of the first people I ever called. And, uh, and I was really honored that that was reciprocated later in, in a different way. Yep. <laughs> um, so this episode, we're going to talk about the fall of Afghanistan and uh, the team that went to Afghanistan that helped lots of people get out. Uh, Chad was one of the most important people to start it at all. And then the key figure that kept it going. And I think for mission success was if like, you know, the center of gravity, Chad Robichaux. Um, and then to my right is Aziz, uh, a interpreter that worked for the special operations community, um, had multiple deployments throughout, uh, his career serving. Um, I think a lot of people get this wrong in misunderstanding who these people were that we were trying to evacuate. Um, I I tell a story about us flying out and we had a woman that passed out and I, and, and I said, Hey, we need a doctor, you know, and like a half dozen, a dozen people stood up, you know, everybody in there spoke perfect English, you know, there's dentists and there's orthopedic surgeons, you know, and there were, there were pilots and there were engineers and, um, you know, Aziz is, is brilliant. You know, he's a patriot, not just to his government, the Afghan people, but also to the special operations community. Um, and I, I, I'm excited to hear because there's a lot about this I don't know about. And I'm and I mean, you talk about down to the wire, lives on the line to be your life and your family's life. This this is how it all started. So, Chad, what is your background? Yeah. And how did you how did we get to my phone ringing saying, hey, can we get this going? Yeah, well, first I want to say thank you for this table because uh, I'm a fidgeter like you, and we're both sitting here playing with all these weapons and weapons of warfare and knives. So I'll try not to cling <laughs> too much. No. So my background, uh, I was a force recon Marine. Uh, I did eight deployments to Afghanistan, but in a kind of unconventional way. I, I was part of a JSOC task force, Joint Special Operations Command Task Force, and uh, went with what I would believe to be the premier special operations unit uh, to Afghanistan in, in a very unique capacity. So um, my uh, role in in my unit was was at a, a unit called Black Squadron. I would have what's called AFOs, Advanced Force Operators, uh, which a lot of people outside of the special operations community really don't know what AFOs are. And uh, I didn't until I got a chance to do it. And, and essentially the best way I know how to describe AFO is like an undercover cop in the military. You go uh, live with the locals, you blend in with the locals, and you go in an advance of your unit to set up all the clandestine infrastructure to put assaulters on target to capture kill bad guys. And uh, so that put me in a capacity to work and embed with the Afghan community and uh, in where I met Aziz. Yeah. And so all eight of my deployments to Afghanistan were in that capacity, you know, at that top tier one unit, um, hundreds of missions, uh, over eight deployments, putting our soldiers on target to capture or kill the, you know, most horrible people on the planet uh, throughout Afghanistan and Pakistan. How did you know Aziz? Well, when I, when I first got to Afghanistan, Aziz was just coming on our team. He worked... He originally, he has a credible story about how he got to come back to work, but he originally worked with you guys at, uh, at the uh, Special Forces guys, and then he went to the presidential detail for Karzai and the Anti-Terrorism Task Force, and then we picked him up at JSOC because of his success there. And uh, so he was originally assigned to me as my interpreter, 
we had a very strong vetting process to take people from interpreters to let them be partially witting, kind of give them a little bit of information, see if we could trust them with it, get them to do a little bit more more things, kind of bring them under the fold. And then at some point you realize, hey, we can really trust this guy. They get heavily vetted, polygraphed, and they start going on operations with you. Uh, as, and then he got assigned to be my guy. And so originally it was like me and this other Navy SEAL uh, named Dave, who actually lives here in Austin at the time. And it was the three of us. And then it became just really just me and Aziz. And we would go all through the mountains of Afghanistan, across the border into Pakistan, just the two of us uh, side by side. And, and many times, I know I can tell you some stories if you want to hear, like many times he, he saved my life. Yeah. Uh, like, and and I say, he saved my life like on three occasions specifically, but uh, he probably saved my life every day. Like, don't yeah. eat that. Don't walk there. Don't talk to that person. If you talk right now, they're going to kill us. Yeah. Uh, he, he tells this crazy story about us, him telling me, hey, just you pretend to be mute. We got this. We got he like sucked me into this chant where they were like, they're like all chanting, like kill infidels and Americans. And they're like wanting to just look for anybody foreigner to tear apart. And he's like, don't talk to anybody. And he's just in there. He's chanting with them. And we're like sucked in this crowd of locals. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die today. And, uh, but, uh, you know, he's, he saved my life every day. And, uh, and when we wasn't operating, I didn't go back to base and he went home. I went home with him. I was there when his oldest son, Mashud, was born and Mashuda's daughter was born. I played with games with nieces and nephews and his Katra, his wife, made me, matter of fact, they were just at our house for Thanksgiving and she, re- she made uh, this uh, palau that she would make for me when we come back from being out in the mountains. And, uh, so I lived with Aziz. He was like my family there, you know, like, you know how close you get team to teammates there. He was my teammate. He was my yeah. family and my brother and I love him. And, uh, and so, yeah, <laughs> I want some of your backstory, but there, there's two things I think are really important for people to understand. Um, when, when you say teammate, um, if, if you, if you think about the closest person in your life that is not a teammate, you know, your, your best friend, even your spouse, yeah. you know, the closest person. And then think about how much more your teammate knows about you. Oh, yeah. like, the level of intimacy that we have with our teammates, you know, like I, I know, I still remember, I had a dream last night. The guy that made this right here, this yeah. is John McPhee, Sheriff of Baghdad, uh, Delta Force guy, amazing man. You go to war, you want John McPhee with you. I, I love John. I dreamt about him last night. <laughs> I can still remember how he breathed on runs. I still remember, um, you know, he, he, he had some spicy relationships. I remember him coming into the team room. Uh, or me showing up to the team room on Monday morning, you know, and, and he's sleeping there. Uh, like the details that you know about somebody's life, um, you know, how they respond to stress, what they smell like, what they smell like when they're scared, you know, like how they're going to, um, like, are, are these under intense circumstances? How is this person going to respond to stress? Are they going to be abusive? Are they going to be cutting? Are they being kind? Are they going to be gracious? Like the things that you know about every person in your, not, uh, in your life, you know, like Aziz knew more mm-hmm. about you than anyone else. Yeah. You know, and that probably at that time in my life, probably my wife, my kids, he was the closest person to me because I didn't go to work and then come home to him yeah. or, or, or be at home with them and then go to work. We're together 24 seven. But do, yeah. people don't understand that. Yeah. And it's a really hard, Marcus Luttrell, um, you know, he, when he was talking about the, the intimacy amongst teammates, you know, he's like, I, I sit there and I'm staring at the back of a tree. And um, what do you think we talk about? when we're hiding, you know, in this little hide site, everything, everything, you know, like yeah. I know your fears, I know your dreams, your, you know, this business that you want to start, you know, like you haven't got a patent on this product that you're thinking about. That's going to be this new tourniquet, but you told me every single detail, like, you know, everything that's the intimacy that, that teammates have. And it's such a beautiful thing. And it's, it, and it's, 
And it's hardened because of the places and the environments and the circumstances that we have to work. You know, there's such extraordinary circumstances that um, that codify th- yeah. this intimacy. So, Aziz, my friend, it is so. I love having you here, and I love seeing the smile. I like that you're not dead. <laughs> Thank you. It's and surreal. It is. It's surreal. Yeah. It's yeah. wild. Yeah. Um, how did you meet Chad? What were your thoughts? And and what was it like? Very rarely do we get to hear what is it like on the interpreter side. You know, working in a special operations, both with special forces, with. Um, you know, with the special missions units, what is that like? You know, when you're going out on operations, you know, like we think t- interpreter, it's like, Aziz, tell that guy to do this. That's not how it works. Exactly. You know, like you're, you're bringing <clears throat> culturally your expertise, your understanding, all these subtle, like these tiny little nuances that exist only in the culture that only you're going to see, no matter, even if I live there 10 years, I'll still never understand them. You have to be so far ahead and translating at a really high level. <clears throat> you know, and we have lots of different, ways to categorize translators, um, just using language, but then getting into language and culture, but then getting into language and culture and security clearance, then getting into <laughs> language, culture, security clearance, and like the nuance of how they can operate in specific types of fields. You know, like you have to be all of those things. Exactly. <clears throat> so what is it like to be on the other end? And it's hot. I'm excited. Uh, thank you very much for having me. And uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, honestly, it was one of the mornings when I met Chad in uh, Kabul at uh, one of our uh, companies uh, that I was hired to work for, uh, for the GSAC Special Operation. And uh, I found Chad really nice and friendly, really smooth. And uh, he was not one of those Americans that when they come to Afghanistan, <clears throat> they're like, you know, they take their separation like, oh, you're Afghan, I'm American, they don't eat your food yeah. because uh, they will get that diarrhea yeah. or they will have some uh, uh, food allergies. But Chad was, uh, you know, really friendly. He didn't um, act or pretend like he's a foreigner. He uh, actually <clears throat> behaved like as if we knew each other from long ago. And that really motivated me uh, to be close to him and, you know, think of him as of my own family, not only a member of the uh, operation, uh, the team that we worked for. And uh, that became, uh, especially when uh, I talked to his wife, uh, to Cathy uh, through his messenger, and Cathy told me to take care of his shardy for him, <laughs> not let him to hurt himself. <laughs> and that was a very powerful message from Cathy that uh, that even brought us uh, more closer and closer to each other. On each operation that we went, I was uh, taking care of him more than myself because of Cathy's uh, message and request, and also um, uh, while working as an interpreter, it's not only interpreter, it's more than a teammate because I was Chad's cultural advisor, I was his driver, I was his guide, like at, like in Afghanistan or Pakistan and most of uh, the locations, you cannot use the GPS, you cannot use the map because if they catch you with that one, it's, uh, you know, directly they call you a spy. Yeah. So uh, because of that, I was more than an interpreter to Chad and I was carrying the uh, firearms for him and as he said you know uh, uh, eat this do not eat that and uh, during the interpretation and translation I had to cut some part and add my own parts in it in order to make it like uh, very nice and smooth because you with some of the teammates uh, 
as I was working, uh, they would just use these uh, very um, abusive words and I had direct abusive words. Hey, tell this motherfucker <laughs> to do this. If not, I will cut his head or something. You cannot say that because when they say it, they mean it. So because of that, I had to just kind of uh, reiterate and add some parts, cut some parts just to make the business go nice and smooth for all the parties. Yeah. And uh, being involved and being know about what we are doing and not letting it happen as a surprise helps the interpreter or anyone who is involved in the team helps to do as much uh, confident and secure things in the process whereas if if you are not aware like in the very first days of uh, the gsoc special operation when i started it with them uh everything looked very weird to me and i didn't know what i was doing they didn't explain it to me because everything was secret everything was uh, top sensitive so i was sometimes i was thinking maybe we are smuggling sometimes we were thinking <laughs> you know maybe we were smuggling hashish or something and then other times I was thinking something else but later on through the part of the uh, the business process the night operations the night raid especially one of the nights when uh, Chad and those guys uh, they went <clears throat> without me to hunt down the bad guys in one of the commercial tracks in uh, uh, the bad guys area and uh, their track is broken. They have no air support. They do not have ground support. Nothing. There's four, they are, four, four seals. There are only four of them, and with one Jenga track with a with a with a bunch of uh, flower sacks. And they're like, "Hey, Aziz, we need your help." And it's like two or they're two, they're two, in a Taliban village down there. Yes, yeah. yes. They were like, and <laughs> I had to use my dad and my uncle and my brother ah. get another Jenga and you know get one of the armored land cruisers come to the area and save these guys and bring them back. And then later on, I found out who we are and what yeah, we're, we're like, doing. <laughs> at that point, we were like, hey, catch yeah. on the back. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, so, you know, trust but verify. And I, I know you can appreciate this because that's not the first theater that that I had worked in when I got to Afghanistan. Um, you know, and, and I'm getting a new interpreter. And, but at some point, you have to pull back the curtain. Yeah. You know, you have to... I can't, I don't have the time to verify. I just have to explicitly trust as that, you know, our, our Afghan counterparts, whether the commandos or the translator, as we're walking down, you know, like they're putting themselves in front of me and they're stepping where they want to step, not just to save themselves, but to save us. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, through a period of time, there is a vetting process and I am trusting and I am verifying, but at some point I just have to trust. Yeah. And that's a wild thing. I tell you, one of the things that made me trust as he's very, very smart. He's, he speaks eight languages. I can barely speak English, yeah. but but, uh, but I mean, it, it, like, not only is he like intellectually smart, he's like street smart. And I picked up on that right away. I grew up in, I grew up in, you know, on the in the bayous and stuff like that. And I know what it's like to be kind of street smart and have the ability to survive. And I picked up right away. He had that. We were. Uh, I was going to. We used to buy a bunch of like local weapons to to stockpile our safe houses for E and E contingencies. So like every safe house, every contingency house had like AK forty sevens and PKMs and RPGs and ammo and grenades and and hard rooms and money and blood and everything yeah. to to make sure that if something happened, we'd get the guys off target safely, hide them, move them back to safety. So that's that was part of my job. And uh, so I'd, I'd go buy these guns from usually from the Taliban. Uh, that was who had them. And uh, so I was buying I was going to buy these a couple of cases of AK-47s, a PKM and, and uh, I think RPG. Yeah. And uh, and and the guy, the seal who had been buying before me, 
he was a he was an idiot and uh, was doing things really like hasty and 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 as he's like, hey, these guys think that this seal, I don't want to say his name to embarrass him, but they think they think he's going and and uh, and they're gonna they're probably gonna rob him and try to kill him. And uh, Aziz like just had that intuition, that street smart. And he said, uh, I don't think you should go by yourself. And, uh, and so I asked two other guys to go with me, Bank and, uh, Bank and uh, Dan, who you know, Dan. And, uh, and so the four of us went and man, his intuition was right. I would have been killed that day. Yeah. Like we pulled up, pulled up in this mud compound and, uh, and, and Aziz and Bank look over the, the mud wall uh, to, to watch the entryway and me and Dan meet this guy. He opens the back hatch. He's got the AK-47s. We're looking at the gun and you could tell He's like super nervous and Dan's talking to him because his daughter was better than mine. And all of a sudden I hear Aziz and Banks start yelling and they're they're I see him over the wall with their with their rifles pointing down and they're yelling. And uh, and the guy starts saying, don't hurt them. They're my friends. And then Dan grabs the guy like, how do you know who's on the other side of that wall? Yeah. And uh, they, they set us up and uh, and the guy's like panicking. And so I run over there and and these guys had these guys at gunpoint. They couldn't get out of the car, ended up pulling them out. They all had AK-47, zip tied them, took their keys, threw them in the field. Moved the car out. And we took the guy with us. Yeah. Uh, because I remember the guys in the car and Banks yeah. in the back seat. The guy, the guy, the guys like yelling. He's yeah. he's, he's saying in Dari like, "Don't kill me." And Banks yeah. like yeah. freaking out like, yeah. "Shut up! Tell him to shut up! I'm gonna shoot him." Yeah. And Banks like, but uh, we end up giving the guy to his elder uh, and turned him over. Yeah. And uh, we never yeah. seen him from him again. But I mean, he saved my life that day because yeah. of his street smarts. He's, and you, you you see stuff like that and you're like, I mean, this guy. I could trust this guy. Yeah. Like he cares about me. He could have sold me out that day. And that trust and that intimacy, you know, leads to building and forging a relationship. And, um, you know, you, you fast forward 13 years where it's 2021 yep. and, uh, you had already kind of been positioning to like, so next to me is saving Aziz, yep. um, Chad Robichaud. This, this book is about, obviously saving disease, but so much more than that, because, um, the effort went from like, while, while the Genesis might've been, let's get Aziz out. And that was the beginning of your heart. Like you have the biggest heart for being such a small dude. You're (laughs) such an inspiring person that, uh, you know, then it was, Hey, can we get these Christians out? Can we get these orphans out? Can, you know, with these commandos out, can like the list just kept growing and your capacity to do good and to inspire and encourage others to, to figure out ways to contribute. Mm -hmm. Like that was, that was beautiful. And that was a powerful thing. And and as good as this book is, Mm -hmm. and as much as I love this book, the, you kind of have to read between the lines because it's small. Like this is, this is his story, right? But there's so much more that's going on there. Um, so from that 2006 to 2012, we'll say peak war, um, you know, war started ebbing, you know, peaked again. We had another surge, um, you know, going from Obama to Trump, you know, using different ordinances, using different drones. Um, every time that Aziz put his neck on the line, his family's neck on the line, there's a ledger. There's oh, yeah. a ledger that was kept by the Taliban. I'm, I'm grossly summarizing, but yeah. they kept track of everybody that contributed in a meaningful way to the success of Americans and their allies mm-hmm. in the country. And um, you put everything there. He was on a ledger. <clears throat> in in, in uh, 2006-2007-ish, we had a compromise on operation. We had, we had about 12 Afghans that, were, that worked for me. They were all OGA trained and, uh, and, uh, and vetted, and one of them flipped Taliban. His name was Bashir. He turned over the other ones. Several were captured, killed. Uh, it was a big blow for me. 
I felt extremely responsible. They were going after Aziz. They drove a V-bid into my house. It led to me being abducted by a foreign intelligence agency. It was a terrible situation. Um, that guy that turned everybody over, Bashir, our command, we, our squadron caught him. He went up going to base of, uh, jail in Bagram, and then he got sent to Saudi. And then he, he was in the Bagram, he was in the Af Kabul jail, yes. and now he's free. He's a Taliban leader. Yeah. And now when the withdrawal starts happening, this Aziz gets word this guy's looking for Aziz because of that ledger. Yeah. And, uh, and he's going to be, Bashir had a personal beef with, with yeah. me, with Aziz. Yeah. Uh, he used to work for us. He was one of us, and he flipped. I mean, it's, it's easy as like the American. I'm using the word ledger. Um, but if you think pragmatically, all of the different Taliban war leaders, all of the geographical war leaders that were or weren't Taliban, some were, some weren't, some, some cooperated, some collaborated. Um, but then, you know, in 2021, you have to take the collective of all of these different lists mm -hmm. and those are starting to be formalized. Yes. And those names are, um, there's some that are being at the top, you know, guys like yourself that worked for special missions units that had top secret security clinches that, that knew the, the, the way that we conducted business and just the way that we, you know, we, we, we will say the, the trade craft mm -hmm. of the thing that is so sensitive that, you know, somebody just knowing how we do business, how do you find a safe house? What do you keep in that safe house? Those, those things are so protected. You know, all those things, yes. you know, and they know that, you know, those things, exactly. you know, and they know all of your friends and your family and your businesses and your family's <clears throat> businesses. Yes. So as let's, let's fast forward, um, 13 years, it's 2019, 2020, you're already looking at moving Aziz back to the States. Yeah. For six years, we tried the special immigrant visa process, uh, which is the process for interpreters. In 2009, we made a, a promise to them that in nine months, they could go, if they filled their agreement to serve America, in nine months, they would get a special immigrant visa, built them and their families would come to the States. Uh, that is a fair, very failed system. Aziz had been in that process for six years. We're talking about a guy who's been polygraphed, vetted, access to top secret information. For six years, he's been in that process. Uh, and, and we had, you and I had a conversation before, hey, I want to go get Aziz um, because we seen what was coming. And then, you know, fast forward all the way to the announcement of the withdrawal. Uh, when President Biden announced that, that he was going to withdraw, I knew I had to go get my friend. And, uh, and I knew the only way to do it would be to, wouldn't be to go to rely on the United States military. It'd be to get the call the the toughest, meanest, most experienced uh, friends that I have that had the courage to go and do that. And and, yeah. and you were the the one of the very first people I, I called. Um, and because uh, because I, I you know I, I've I've uh, said this a lot. You know a lot of people you know wh wh you know gave you a hard time for going to Afghanistan uh, because. You know, people hate people that are successful and, uh, and you've been extremely successful in your life. And people, why, why'd you call Tim? Because he's popular. Man, I called, I called Tim one because he's, he's a Green Beret, experienced Green Beret. Uh, I've talked to guys who've been downrange with them. Uh, I've, I've, uh, you have AS, ASO level training, which is the kind of training you need for this, this stuff. Most people that have been, have hated on you. Don't even know what that is, what ASO level training is. So Tim has all these things. He has real world experience and I trust him. Like I, yeah. I trust the the reasons behind the motivation behind doing something like this. Because the last thing I wanted to do with putting a team together, to go to Afghanistan, was get a bunch of guys who hadn't been to combat that were looking to go scratch their itch uh, that they hadn't scratched in the last twenty years of war. I wanted guys that were mature, experienced, had life success, and uh, and and I trusted you. And so yeah. I picked up the phone and I called you. And I, and I, I tell you, 
you know, right here in front of everybody listening. I'm, th I'm thankful you said yes. I love you. And I was honored that you called me. I didn't deserve to be called, but I, I, I felt, well, let's not talk about me. So on the other end of that, uh, what was happening in Afghanistan, let's say July and August, um, you know, we, we knew what was going to happen. So yeah. we were already positioning, you know, but, but in, in July, things are crumbling. You know, ta Taliban is massing at every border. Um, they are starting to uh, pulse their networks. So, you know, wh whether it's outside of Bagram or Kandahar or Kabul, you know, down in Erzgan, down in Helmand, every single, every single one of those formerly um, contested areas, those are, when I say pulsing, the Taliban were reinvigorating contacts and reactivating former cells that had been cold for maybe 10 years, maybe five years, maybe one year. They're spicing those back up. They're infusing money. They're infusing power. They're saying, hey, we're coming. This is what we have positioned. And on that dribble, that breadcrumb of information and knowledge was inspiring these radicals to do what ultimately happened, which was take over Afghanistan in a matter of weeks. What was that like on the ground? Uh, honestly, <clears throat> on the ground, we didn't anticipate it as it happened uh, because uh, uh, everything looked so uh, kind of coldish, like when the winter is coming, you know, all the leaves are dying, the grass is dying. The whole country, uh, you, could, you could feel it. There was a feeling about it that everything is like, you know, uh, really uh, tired and uh, bored and businesses are down. Uh, electricity is down, uh, famine and <clears throat> hunger is coming, uh, poverty, lots of uh, orphans and kids on the streets. Uh, that this, this feeling was coming, but I was r uh, not really anticipating that the country would collapse that quick because I was really counting on the Afghan spe Special Forces, the 300,000 army that was trained by the United States Army uh, from different sections, uh, the police, the Afghan NDS, and plus uh, the help and support of the United States behind them as they were saying that, you know, uh, they will continue the aid, especially the salary for the soldiers. Uh, but honestly, uh, on the ground because of the corrupt, because of the multi-ethnicity leaders that they only worked for their uh, tribes and uh, their own uh, personal uh, benefits. And because of not being a one united nation in Afghanistan, the country uh, started to collapse very quickly. Yeah. And uh, people were also tired. Some people were who, who had no sides, like no sides with the Afghan Republic, no sides with the Taliban. They were also tired of all these killings, those suicide attacks and everyday uh, loss of the innocent people. They just wanted a regime change. Yeah. On the other hand, it was very dangerous for people like me who, who served almost uh, two decades uh, under classified version of uh, the contracts. And my SIV was a total Failure on the other hand, because the USCIS, they don't care uh, how hard I work uh, in Afghanistan with the army or for the government. For them, the, 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 the main thing was the, to fulfill the requirement. They needed a contract number. They needed some documents to prove where I could not show them because everything was classified. Yeah. And... Um, you know, everything looked like it's the end of the world on the ground in Afghanistan. 
But most of the people like me, they were not counting that, you know, this will collapse all of a sudden within the matter of a, a week or a few days. Mm. And uh, suddenly I noticed that the Taliban emerging, the Taliban are re, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, growing, uh, regenerating from different provinces. They are capturing each province within the matter of 24 hours. 32 hours, 40 hours, the countries are uh, the countries and the provinces collapsing just within the matter of hours, and that 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 was really shocking. And that was when I really got my phone and got a hold of Chad and Daniel Stinson, and you know I told them, hey brother, uh, especially one of the drivers, Tutahil, who was from the same tribe with Basir who spent six years in Pulcharhi jail and a few months in Bagram jail, the one who compromised with the Haqqani network and gave all my personal information to them. And, you know, when I received a call from him that he was in Logar province, he is a big commander of the Taliban. Coming, this, was, this was our old guy. Yeah. yeah. Telling me, coming to Kabul, sending you to hell, wait for me. And that was the time that I really lost all my energy. My body became really weak and numb. And Chad really understood uh, what I was going through. And the same thing with Dan. Uh, they were sending me these uh, jokes through the phone. Chad was talking to me. He's like, I'm holding prayers for you in the churches. They know exactly what you have been through. God loves you. Don't worry. We are coming to get, save you. Uh, we are putting a team together. I, I still didn't believe it. I was like, no, man, it's very, you know, at the, <clears throat> the end of the thing. It's, it seems like I'm dying. I was not worried about myself being uh, killed by those guys, but I was really worried about my daughters, about my sons, and my wife, because... They had nothing to do with all this, yeah. and I really felt uh, myself guilty because of me. They were receiving all that, but as Chad was saying, that God is really kind, and all you guys uh, came together, and I really appreciate all of you guys, and you know, saved us just like when they say that I need to see God's miracle. For me, that was a God's miracle. Yeah, yeah. The um, you you, you have a beautiful family. Thank you. You do. And um, you, you, unfortunately, like us, have seen what the Taliban does to their enemies. Um, they're, um, I, I, I hope to be a man of grace and I hope to be a man of compassion. And, uh, and I can look at almost any race, any culture, any religion, and, and I can love something about them. The Taliban, I have a really hard time. Um, they're, and, and they're brutal. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're brutal in ways that we can't describe on this podcast. They, they have done and do things that are, that are indescribably evil. And that is what was coming for you and your family. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and you know that firsthand. Yeah. And and his daughters knew that talking yeah. to his daughters, they, his daughters were scared. They knew. Yeah. It, you know, like we, we like the Hollywood, they're going to rape and murder and, you know, like you don't understand what that looks like, you know? We know, we understand what that looks like. Yes, it's it's easy to just say it by words and sentences. I mean, as you said, there's no words or sentences to describe that. But when you are in it, you really understand how it is, how yeah. sad it is. Yeah, I I get like a hurt in my stomach even thinking yeah. about that happening to anyone that I know. Yeah. Um, and it is happening. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it's it happened and it's <clears throat> happening. To, I mean, it's 
20 million women and little girls left behind in Afghanistan. By the, yeah. their reemergence uh, at the provinces before they captured the Kabul province, we saw that how many girls they raped in north of Afghanistan, in uh, Kunduz, Takhar, and Panjshir, yeah. and other provinces, and also in Herat province and Farah provinces, and how badly they killed all those uh, ex-military officers, soldiers. They tortured them. They yeah, killed them how badly. in front of their families. Uh, we're, 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 we're glossing over it but when he says how badly that the taliban would burn alive they would drill hands to the wall rape entire family members they would cut eyelids open so that you couldn't close your eyes to watch these are things that were happening and when he said so as a providence would fall these things were happening there and the taliban were were uh, blitzing through towards the capital and every providence that they took the, the the atrocities that they committed in that prior providence would reach forward as fast yeah. as you could text message so we knew what was happening exactly yeah. and we knew how fast it was falling I mean anybody I, I, I've been in these rooms you've been in these rooms like you're sitting on this TV screens everywhere and uh, and you're watching I mean our, our US intelligence agencies and, and DOD had to be watching the Taliban coming in and surging at 75,000 of them towards Kabul yep. and, and no one was doing anything to stop them and, and and you wonder why people are, I've heard people make like really ill-informed comments of how why would we help these people when they wouldn't help themselves first of all 60,000 of them died over the last 20 years defending their country which is like the equivalent of loss per capita of like our civil war so they were fighting for themselves but these aren't people in deployment their wives and kids live down the street yeah. and and they're doing this stuff and, and they have no support overnight they have no air they have no support how do you, how do you <laughs> first of all how do you be cool when some you know somebody is like uh, these people don't even fight for themselves and yeah. I, like my, my neck vein immediately <laughs> yeah. starts bulging you know it's like yeah. you, you have never seen ever yeah. what happens there and when you say they're like their families live there um, like they've never been in a coup they've, ne they've never been in a civil war you know you're sitting there tweeting that or you know on some comment section yeah. you're throwing some hate or shade at, at, at you or me or, or any any anyone else that was involved with that and what entitled privileged ignorance yeah does it take for you to write that so, it, so self un like so so naive. unaware <laughs> uh, yeah unaware is this, these oh, are people that's never been that has no context at yeah all. But it no, still makes me mad. <laughs> it, still, it does make you mad. Oh yeah. I try to be cool, but I'm like, it's hard for me yeah. to be cool. You know, it's like, well, it's so insulting. And I actually got a news one time, and I, I felt like the, the urge to apologize to the Afghan people for like, those comments because I'm like, I, I apologize for the, our, our president saying that that they didn't want to fight for themselves. I'm like, sixty thousand of them have died for their fighting for their country, fighting for their freedoms, fighting for the daughters to be able to go to school. Yeah. And, and, and this isn't like when you say not deploying, when they go home at night, the Taliban is coming to their home. Yeah. Their neighbor across the street is an informant for the Taliban. You know, that, that pr prior providence that just fell, your cousin was just raped and murdered and videoed and then forwarded to you. Like that's what's happening. And everybody's trying to survive. So yeah. people are ratting each other out. It's yeah. It's so it's un I mean, it's a no-win situation for them. I mean, yeah. they, they had 20 years of support, not transitioned over, taken away. The The United States didn't negotiate with uh, with the Afghan government, with the international community. They negotiated with the, with the Taliban, yeah. and they gave the country to the Taliban. So the uh, things are falling. Providence are falling. People are, are descending into... So we had two huge outposts there. We had Kandahar and Bagram. And, um, and then we had the, the third largest military presence being in Kabul. And when Kandahar and Bagram 
were given over to the Taliban. I don't know another way to say it. No, um, <laughs> there's no other way. <laughs> yeah. So here are these two strategic positions, both that have strategic relevance on the ground in, in this, this operational environment, <clears throat> but all of the things for us to be successful in the region happened out of those two bases. Those now are occupied by the Taliban. Everybody is falling back to, to, the, to, to Kabul, to Hikaya. What does that feel like? You know, if you've ever been on a boat that's sinking, and I've been on a boat it's that's sinking, it's a weird thing. But, you know, r rats are running for high ground. Um, anything that can fly is flying. Hikaya is the high ground. Yeah. <laughs> It was really dangerous. It was really dangerous because <clears throat> hundreds of thousands of people from 34 provinces of Afghanistan stormed to the Kabul airport to Echkaya because that was the only uh, safe route to, to get out of the country. There was no other route. All the borders were blocked by the Taliban. There were checkpoints on the roads. Like I myself, like I tried five times to get into the airport uh, while carrying my AK, my pistols, and my six children and my wife all wrapped up in Afghan jammies and, you know, scarf and stuff. But still, uh, I couldn't make it uh, because uh, hundreds of thousands of people, they are pushing themselves. They are, uh, you know, trying to get inside the airport and get on the plane and get out of the country. It was like the end of the world, as they say, the doomsday. For me, it looked like the doomsday. And um, uh, there was really uh, helplessness and uh, disappointments and, uh, you know, uh, it was, uh, the overall was very, very bad. Yeah. Uh, there is no word, such a word that I should be able to explain uh, what I have been through in those five days, especially from 15 to the 20th August until uh, you guys send the uh, the plane and uh, the, the crew to pick me up from the outside. And uh, those five days were uh, worse than worse than hell. I've I, I have never experienced such bad days in my life. I remember I have been to very dangerous uh, special yeah. operations uh, with Chad and uh, other teammates. Uh, but you know, I was really powerful and brave and courageous. But this time, because my childrens were with me, I was totally dying from inside. Yeah, I remember he'd be like, "I can't go again." Yeah. like, "I need yeah. you to go my, again." My, on the other <laughs> hand, my wife. <laughs> Uh, just before the country collapsed or before the capital collapsed, she did the operation of this appendix operation and her wounds were all infected and, you know, uh, they were not dry enough yeah. and she was crying. And every time I tried to take her uh, uh, to Kaya or another route or another gate that the guys would send me the, the GPS uh, locations from inside and then... She's like, no, we cannot make it. I would rather die inside my home, but <laughs> yeah. not over under the feet of the people. Because, I mean, you saw it. You guys were there physically. You saw that how yeah. uh, when but, those, that right. woman, when she got shot at and, you know, people were stepping on her. Yeah, let, let, let's talk about that. So it's not so simple. Just you showed up at the airport, right? You, you have a half a million people that have surrounded what is... 12 city blocks. Yeah. The HKI, you know, yeah, and yeah. so you, you, have, you have a quarter million people, half a million, quarter million to half a million people that have surrounded this airport. And, you know, he says, Hey, he would get a, 
uh, grid coordinates for us to link up. So somebody on the ground inside of the airport would, and this is how we were trying to find specific families if we weren't doing a big movement of people. We would send a message to a specific person to tell us to meet us at a specific point so that we could escort them onto the base. Um, that sounds so simple. Yeah. There is nothing harder in the military than two friendly units trying to conduct a link up in an unfriendly territory. Mm-hmm. And you want to talk about the least permissive environment on the planet? It is Hkaya in August of 2021. I, I have never seen that level of desperation. I have never seen that level of danger. Everywhere that you walk, looked, there was dead bodies. There were dead kids. There was the Taliban. Or you didn't even know. The worst was you didn't know. No, yeah. <clears throat> you know, the and so... Like, why didn't you just go back to the base another time? Because every time that one of, you know, every time that Aziz would try to make to the base, he would have to fight his way through Taliban checkpoints, um, informants, you know, the um, roaming patrols um, to include that maybe the Americans, not the American that we were trying to link up with, but the Americans that were guarding the base would perceive him as a non-friendly or a threat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the Marines shot at me several times. Several times I showed them my documents. I'm like, hey, man, I worked with this team. He's like, you know Chad? And they're like, we don't know Chad. (laughs) Yeah, I told them. It was in the middle of the night. I told them, do you know Chad? He's a really famous man. I mean, Google him. I worked for him and I saved his life and his friends. They're like, no, I don't know you, this young Marine, yeah. you know, he's shooting at me right like above my head, just <laughs> trying to scare me to run away from him. Uh, when somebody's drowning, a lifeguard dives in to save them. Like, why doesn't that lifeguard swim up and just try to grab him and drink, bring him in? Because that drowning person is so desperate, they'll drown the lifeguard as they're trying to do it. That's yeah. why you use a life-saving ring or a, a shepherd's crook or any other tool to prevent you from being next to that person. Aziz would have to navigate through hundreds of thousands of people that are more desperate than any form of desperation that anyone has ever seen in the history of their existence to include on any movie ever. That's yeah. that is Afghanistan, August of 2021. Yes. Um, it's amazing that you didn't die. Just, just randomly. That is how yeah. dangerous the place was. Every time you would get within two miles of the airport, you are fighting for your life and one wrong step, you're going to be murdered. Yes. It's insane. Yeah. So this book is freaking amazing. The story is amazing. It's un, it's unreal. Um, your, your courage through all this, your family's courage. You have, a, you have, you have an amazing family. Not only are, are they, are they they're stunning and beautiful, but like the strength and will to survive is um, that's that's a compelling thing. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're brilliant, beautiful kids, yes. and they're so amazing. They're here, and but like you said, you know, the book Saving Aziz, but the subtitle is How the Mission to Save One Turned into Calling to Save Thousands, and because of our love for Aziz and in in uh, driving us to go there, you know, it opened the door to about to help thousands of yeah. others, ultimately seventeen thousand others. Yeah. Sarah. Our friend, you know, she, she says something that I love. She says, if you have the ability to do good for somebody and you don't do it, are you complicit in what happens to them if they're not helped? Yeah. And I think we share this sentiment, you know, for evil to conquer, it takes good men to do nothing. That's right. And, um, you know, you did something and you inspired a group of people to do um, you know, we're not friends with some of those people, you know, like it, the, some of those relationships have been frazzled, you know, sure. but the good that was done in the moment of need is, is all that matters. Yeah. And, uh, I judge a, 
a, a culture, a community, when men get old, will they plant a, will they plant a tree in, in knowing that the shade of that tree they'll never live under? If we're just going to simplify to the easiest and lowest level, it is if you can do good, do you do good? That's it. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. else. Yeah, you know, I've, I've heard it said before, and I've kind of, this last two years have been pretty educational to me with Afghanistan and EVACs and then Ukraine. But I really have heard the saying before, and I kind of like lived up to it this last two years, is this, there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. Yeah. And uh, I think so many people get caught up, especially in our culture right now, in the politics where they're, uh, you know, trying to take a side. And what's just when it comes down to doing the right thing for humans, helping other humans. Yeah, all that has to go to the side. Just do the right thing. And and, and, uh, and one of our mutual friends, Sea uh, Spray, was being interviewed recently, and and uh, got asked that question, right? Uh, why why are you out here doing this? And because uh, it's the right thing to do. And yeah. we, we've said that before. It's the right thing to do. But then asked a second question that really took me back. They said, "Was it worth it?" And he said, "It doesn't have to be worth it. You know, it, it doesn't have to be worth it to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, you don't have to get something out of it to do the right thing." Yeah. And uh, I think that was the heart. Of all of us, when we went, when we when I called you, when Nick stepped up, when Sarah stepped up, when Dan stepped up, when all of us just said, "Yes, let's go help." I, I think no one in the, in the initial moments cared about what they were going to get out of it. It's just like, "Let's go help these people." I don't know them, they can, but I know they can't help themselves. And if we don't go, more people are going to die. Let's go help. Yeah. That's what people did. Yeah, I'm not going to disparage an administration, you know, but we were imperfect. Uh, we, sure. we conducted an operation and effectively we, we gave authority and powers to people that didn't know how to use it or how to wield it. Um, creating what was in my lifetime, the worst evacuation in my lifetime, um, yeah. the, the worst loss of life of our allies. This was the longest war in American history, 20 years, mm-hmm. 20 years we fought there and 20 years with, you know, dozens of deployments, um, thousands of lives lost, tens of thousands of Afghan military lives lost fighting for this against the Taliban, these radical ideas. And a life is worth saving. Yeah. That's it. Yep. It, all the other stuff doesn't matter in that moment. Yeah. Oh, if, he's if, Muslim. If, yeah. And? Yeah, we, know, he's we, Afghan. <laughs> and? We had a beautiful, th- a beautiful thing happen that it's kind of just, we were getting, you know, I was working a lot on the donors. So we had a, I had this donor who was going to pay for two planes in the plane. One plane was 800,000. One plane was 700,000. So like $1.5 million in donation, big donation. And it was a Jewish organization, uh, a Jewish nonprofit out of Israel. And they, and they agreed to make the donation and they, they contacted us and said, Hey, we can't do the wire transfer. And I'm like, okay, why is there is the number off? Like what's, what's the problem? And they said, Mighty Oaks, because we were doing the, the my, my foundation, Mighty Oaks Foundation at the time was Save Our Allies hadn't been stood up yet, was taking the donations. And uh, they said, well, Mighty Oaks Foundation is a Christian organization. We're Jewish. We can't make a donation. And I said, okay, but you do realize we're saving Muslims, right? And they were like, <laughs> we just laughed. It was like, okay, let's do it. And they made the donation. And I thought it was a beautiful thing, you know, yeah. like a Jewish organization giving money to a Christian organization to rescue Muslims, yeah. you know, people helping people. And people uh, helping the number of people, um, you know, Glenn Beck wrote this forward. Like how many people did he mobilize to help in this effort? Uh, I don't even think you could count. Yeah, right. I don't even think you count. Cause I mean, he, millions and millions of dollars. He just got on his radios. I mean, the weapon he had, you know, you and I have our skill sets that we brought to the table to do this. You know, my background in Afghanistan experience, in Afghanistan, your yeah. background, Glenn Beck is a microphone yeah. and he has an audience of people to respond. He just wanted to do something. He got on a microphone and said, 
help. Yeah. And people helped in the, in the realm of $40 million. People gave him money. And at the time he called me, he's like, I raised like $20 million. You guys helping? Like I want to contribute. And yeah. he started paying for planes. And, uh, and Rudy, Rudy Atala, who works for him, started uh, coordinating the flights. And it was incredible to see everyone just come together and do the right thing. You know, Operation Airlift, Task Force Argo, um, Pineapple Express. Like the, the list just goes on and yeah. on and on. And every one of those you know organizations, quick startups, were with the same purpose and the same goal, you know, to save Aziz's, yeah. like the, yeah. the tens of thousands of people like you that were amazing patriots and amazing people that, that deserved mm -hmm. to be treated fairly. It, you know, I was, we were talking about this before the show started about people's lack of compassion for Afghanistan, Ukraine. How far do you have to be away from some, something to lose compassion? If a baby was like on this table right here dying, are choking wouldn't one of us just get up and yeah, get up and, and, and do something to save it right would we care about hey what race are you where are you from is your president corrupt like <laughs> none of that matters yeah. i'm going to save them so how far does something have to be removed from you yeah, before you lose compassion if like if the baby's sitting right there on that yeah. doorstep yeah, and that was a too far away too far away in yeah. the office right over there like in the parking lot at what point do you not care that right. this life isn't worth saving and yeah. uh, and as cool as technology is it has made this world smaller mm -hmm. you know um th there were times where our planes were crossing each other you're yeah. like i'm coming from slovakia or <laughs> hungary and you're coming from poland and we're both trying to figure out ways to get into ukraine yeah you know and um i'm you you kicked me off the day that the the were the day doors close in afghanistan yeah you're like go to albania like, <laughs> okay <laughs> you know? yeah like yeah at what point do you have to stop doing good yeah, I, I mean, for me, you know, and I go, I go back to what Sarah said, you know, if you have the ability to, how can you not? Like, yeah. uh, I don't know, it's it, it's what, there's like a lot of things that people look for purpose and passion. My passion is just helping people, however that may look, whether I pull over and somebody's stuck on the side of the road with a flat tire or, or, or my friend's stuck in Afghanistan. Like, if you have the opportunity to help people, you help people. Yeah, It's just what humans are supposed to do for other humans. And there's no, there's no more, by the way, for everybody listening, there's no more rewarding thing in, on the planet than, than serving others. Like, yeah. if everybody looks for satisfaction and gain and, and to feel good and feel purposeful, there's no more uh, yeah. greater feeling in the world and help someone else that they can't repay you either. I mean... I mean, that's the true nature of helping Steve. You're helping people that can't ever pay you back. And have a, have a close circle. Yeah. You know, you're <laughs> one of uh, probably 10 people on the planet that could almost ask me to do anything, and I would do it. You know? I'll use that sparingly. Aziz, what does life look like now for you? Well... <clears throat> It's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> I'm a <Dixon> now. <laughs> he just had Thanksgiving, you know man. Texas elk right there. He just had Thanksgiving. He's he's, he's loving it. Yeah. What did, you, what did you think of Thanksgiving? I loved it. I uh, did you cook all? Well, we we just did like we did the works. We did everything. We, we okay. even had we even had we had the ham. We had the turkey. We had <laughs> we had green beans. We had like. The full spread, and then in Hatra, his wife brought the Afghan dishes. Okay. Yeah. And she, she, had, she had some halal beef, and then she had uh, some palau. Yeah. The same kind we used to eat at his house. It, it was So we just had everything. Dude, yes. that's awesome. <laughs> and uh, your family happy? Yes, they are, yeah. Yeah. Of course, especially my daughters. Yeah. <laughs> they you have what? everything. Because in Afghanistan, my sons could go to the uh, uh, clubs, like sports. Yeah. 
at gymnastics, but my daughters couldn't. Now <laughs> they are going to martial yeah, arts. And they can't again. Uh, the the Taliban yeah. two months ago repassed Sharia, yeah. saying that girls can't go to school, or nor could they be in athletic clubs. Exactly. So they're public flogging. That's yep. penalty already. Yeah. We're, yeah, we're back to it. Back to it. Yeah. People wondered how long it would last. Well, it's the new Taliban. The new pet, yeah, it lasted. Um, <laughs> let's see, uh, it lasted nine months. Just yeah. for you keeping track, I said it was going to last six months. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the moment that the the cameras yeah. w- were taken away from what was happening there. I'm sure. I'm sure it's probably day one, but we, we're just starting to learn about it. Yeah. It is. It's yeah. very strict the, nowadays. The female cannot walk by herself on the streets. She cannot go to the store. She cannot go to the doctor. Uh, even if she's dying, there has to be a male with her together. And then on the road at checkpoints, they get stopped and they ask them questions. What's your relations? Show me IDs. Mm. Like, uh, you know, uh, you cannot uh, go to the doctor with your uh, cousin, a female cousin. If they catch you, you know, they uh, bring you to the stadium and they hit you with 100 lashes. Yeah. I mean, that's what they just did recently. Yeah. And meanwhile, yeah. his, his, a really cool piece. So his, he comes to me and he says, uh, his wife... And his daughter are working at McDonald's. And he, he works for Mighty Oaks. He works for me now. And I'm like, man, you guys need money? Like, like what's going on? You, they're working at McDonald's. Like, McDonald's didn't pay well. He's like, no, they wanted, to, they wanted to get out of the house and work. I'm like, well, let's get her a better job, like, somewhere else. Like, I can hook it up. I know a lot of people. He's like, no, you don't understand. They, they wanted to work at McDonald's yeah. because... <laughs> It's American. They yeah. work at McDonald's, and they want to work at McDonald's because they could never like do that before. Or work at um, a Pete Terry's, uh, a Rudy's. Like the, they're, those are quintessential yeah. Texas good we American. To work at McDonald's. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, Hotcher's awesome. She's yeah. so funny. Well, Aziza, the few times I've got to see you, I've got to hug you and tell you that I'm glad that you're alive. I'm glad that um, you inspired Chad to um, mobilize his community and his network to go and do good. Um, I, I implore everybody to read this book, Saving Aziz. This is an amazing, beautiful story that like how the mission to help one, this beautiful young man right here, <laughs> uh, became a calling to save thousands that it, it, it's, it's a heartfelt story that, um, is so true and so relevant now as, um, I worry about this. I, th- I think every generation looks at the next generation and they're like, ah, oh, man, are they going to be able to do it? Um, these are the stories that, you know, as I look at my uncles that fought in, in Vietnam and I look at my grandpas that were in World War II, you know, those are the stories that, that inspired me. You know, these are the sport stories that are going to inspire the next generation. And um, man, I hope people read this book. Yeah, me too. I mean, obviously, as someone that wrote a book, you want people to read it, but because of the truths that are in it, it's a... Uh, it you know everybody wonders what happened during those uh during evacuations and uh I, I didn't I wasn't trying to be biased against any political administration I just I I I journal and so I journaled as things were going like we were doing this the administration made this decision and these are the consequences of it yeah. so I just gave a real just accurate journal of everything that happened and it's all cataloged in there from the beginning of our relationship to the evacuation the decisions that we made the decisions the government made all the way until you know that last effort we did with me and Dennis. Trying to swim, swim in Afghanistan for ten days, <laughs> trying to build routes to get people yeah. out, and, and Nick and Sarah were about to have strokes, and 
Yeah, you scare us. <laughs> Don't die. You do, you do more good on this planet. Is he allowed to die? No, no. You have to live. Uh, he's got a long mission. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. More and more. Yeah, you're gonna Such die works. of old age and continue yeah. to save lives. Yeah. Um, so mighty mighty oak foundation. Um, how do how do people donate? Yeah, mightyoaksprograms.org is a website. Uh, you know, we do. For those who don't know what Mighty Oaks is, we have. Uh, I personally attended. Amazing. Yeah. Any, every any veteran. Um, Struggling, not struggling, want to go with a friend, you know, this, this is an amazing program. Yeah, we have a, we have a resiliency programs in the last 12 years. I've spoken to about 400,000 active duty troops based around the world. I go to Marine Corps boot camp and we do our resiliency training and then we have our recovery programs, which is like the one you went to our legacy camps. We do about 35 of those a year at five different ranches around the country in California, Ohio, Virginia, and Texas. Uh, we've had about 4,500 graduates, and then uh, and then we have you know a policy to bring faith-based programs back into veterans' care policy, and then our international efforts to bring these programs to our allied partners around the world in places like Ukraine where we're doing it now. Uh, but yeah, with the the recovery programs we do uh, we pay for everything, so nothing. We do about five million dollars a year in programming, travel, everything's paid for. So if anybody wants to go, you simply go to mightyoaksprogram.org, you apply, and one of our one of our applications managers will get back to you, and we'll get you in. And if you want to support, it's, it's, it's free to them, but it's not free to us. So if you want to support, it's a, it is a 501c3, so it's tax-deductible donation. It's an amazing ministry. Amazing. Chad, as always, thank you for everything that you do and will continue to do. <clears throat> Love you, brother. Love you, man. Aziz, <laughs> you cannot die. You have to. You have to die of old age. Yes, well, he, I've been taking him skydiving twice now. Yeah. And, and it, yeah. When, when uh, the first jump, he leans over and he says, "You, you, you rescued me from Afghanistan to come here and die." Yeah. <laughs> uh, man, don't put that hate on me. I'm gonna die whenever I die. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you guys are the important ones. Yeah. All right. Uh, it's about violence podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Check out this amazing book, Saving Aziz: um, The How to Mission, The Mission to Save One Became How to Save Thousands. Uh, uh, written by Chad Show right here. Stay safe, stay free. About Violence Podcast.